Welcome to the LifePoint Church Podcast. Our mission is to help people become fully devoted followers of Christ through intentionally serving, giving, and caring for our neighbor. We bring you Christ-centered messages from our pastors each Sunday, as well as engaging discussions relevant to your life. So grab a cup of coffee, get comfortable, and join us as we strive to grow as followers of Christ and make a positive impact in our community. So I wasn't here last week because we were doing our LifePoint family camping trip. If you've never been and you want to, uh, every year, somewhere around May or June, we do the trip and it's a wonderful time. And here's the thing about being a pastor is I'm vulnerable. I let you see my emotions. I shared that I have gone to fish 13 separate times and not caught anything. I'm gonna be honest with you, I sunk so low as to going to a park pond and trying to catch those little ones that are just right near the edge that the children catch. Can I tell you, I didn't even catch one of those. I almost gave up. You weren't supposed to show the picture yet? Yeah, so that happened. Uh, I told, well, here's the thing. That happened yesterday, uh, Friday, uh, a four-pounder, a three-pounder. But here's the thing. I was made fun of ruthlessly by those up camping. No fish, Nathan. Hey, look what my daughter got, right? And they'd show this little crawdad, and they'd be like, what'd you catch? I'll be honest, the worst part of coming back from a fishing trip isn't getting skunked. It's having to answer the question, so did you catch anything? Right? You guys know. Fishermen know what I'm talking about. Well, no more. The streak was broken. I caught those two beauties. Caught about four or five yellow bass, a catfish, and numerous bluegill this big, and I feel fantastic. So when I, sit, when I say Psalm 81, sing for joy to God our strength, has a new meaning for me this morning. No fish, Nathan, is no more. I'm a fisher. Grab a Bible, open it up to Psalm 81. We are continuing in our series Psalm of, the, of the Psalms, and Psalm 81 is our first psalm we're doing that wasn't written by King David. It's written by a man named Asaph, who was the son of Gershon, who came in the line of the Levites. Who were the Levites? Does anyone know? Right, the priestly tribe. And so not only does he have this sort of heritage, Asaph, but he is chosen as one of the three top guys in David's court to sing in the house of Yahweh. And so you'll see a lot of psalms that are attributed to him, and this is one of his. And this is an interesting psalm because for us and where we are today, if you were to just read it at face value, it might not make a lot of sense. It's about a Jewish feast, a Jewish holiday called the Feast of Tabernacles. But what I want to show you today is what the Lord has helped me see through this, and I believe it'll be valuable for you today, is that the Feast of Tabernacles may not be something you celebrate, but what the feast celebrates is something you should know about. It's something that you shouldn't just know about. It's something that should be a vital part of your life, okay? So I'm gonna read through this here. We'll have the words up on the screen. I'm not going to sing it for your benefit, and, uh, but I will read it with passion and the joy that it is meant to be read with. So here we go. Psalm 81, starting in verse 1. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music. Strike the tambourine. Play the melodious harp and lyre. Sound the ram's horn at the new moon. And when the moon is full on the day of our feast, this is a decree of Israel. An ordinance of the God of Jacob, he established it as a statute for Joseph 
That when he went out against Egypt where he heard a language we did not understand, he says, I remove the burden from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. In your distress I called and I rescued you. I answered you out of a thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, and I will warn you if you would but listen to me, O Israel. What situation is being talked about? Go ahead, you can yell it out. What situation is he talking about so far that God delivered them from? Slavery from where? Egypt, right? So this is what they're remembering. This is what the Feast of Tabernacles is helping to remember. Verse 9, you shall have no foreign god among you. You shall not bow down to any alien god. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But my people will not listen to me. Israel will not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. If my people would just listen to me, if Israel would follow my ways, how quickly would I subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes? Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him, and their punishment would last forever. But you, Israel, would be fed with the finest wheat, with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. This is the word of the Lord for us today. What does this have to do with us? A song about a thousands-year-old Jewish festival. What does that have to do with you today? Is that a question maybe you're having? Let me ask you something. When you hear the word wilderness, what kind of topography comes to mind? Arizona. Arizona, amen. I see that hand. Glory. Right back there. Anybody else? The desert. Death Valley. I've heard something over here. South Africa? The Sinai Peninsula? Yeah, that's okay. So like a frozen tundra? Is it is Sinai Peninsula? Oh, no, you're talking Sinai in the mid, Midwest, Mideast, not Midwest. In Nebraska, Sinai, Nebraska, in the Mideast, yes. It is, it's a desert. It's a desert setting. It's not the forest, it's not a jungle, it's not a beach, it's a desert. And the reason is a desert and what they were going through, what the Israelite people were going through and what we get to experience right here in our lovely city of Santan Valley, officially this week, summer started. Did you know that? You can tell because we now have 10-day forecast of 110 degrees or more. So summer, it's here. It's a little later than usual. Thank you, Lord, for your kind mercies, but it is here. And why is the wilderness a desert? Because the definition of wilderness is inhospitable. It is a place that is inhospitable and not conducive to human life. Have you ever been lost in the desert? Have you ever been out? Maybe you were out side-by-siding UTVs and it broke down and you were in the middle of nowhere on a, in the middle of the day. Has anyone ever had that happen? Yeah? Yeah, I have. Let me tell you, I have been lost in a forest. I have been lost in a forest when it was snow on the ground and I have been stuck in the desert at 1 p.m. in the afternoon in the middle of the summer and that was the most horrifying thing I've ever been a part of because you know you have limited amount of time before your body just shuts down, right? In the snow, I knew I'd have water to drink from the fresh snow at least, and I had clothes that were warm. I could last for a while. I had shade with the trees. But a wilderness wants to kill you. You ever notice how all the plants in a desert have thorns on them? 
they also want to kill you. <laughs> Even the plants want to kill you. It's the wilderness, man. This is what this song is about. It's about the wilderness. And here's what's, here's what's wild. Verse 3 of Psalm 81 says, Sound the ram's horn at the new moon, and when the moon is full on the day of our feast. You see, they would sound the horn at the beginning of every full moon. I mean, at the, it, was, it would be at the beginning of the new moon, but on the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar was the only month the ram's horn would be sounded twice as it would be sounded up for the new moon and at the full moon, which would be 15 days from the beginning of the month. This was the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a feast that the people uh, remembered so that they could remember the time when they were in tents and the Spirit of God traveled with the tabernacle, right? It was a remembrance that God sustained them in a place that they should not have been sustained. Do you understand that? So this is the purpose of the feast, that we should have died in the desert. It makes no sense that they could wander for 40 years and not die. They should have died, but they were upheld by the mighty hand of God. So this is what this song by Asaph is reminding the people of. And here's what it is. As God has led them out of slavery from Egypt, and it says, I spoke to you in the thundercloud, that's at Mount Sinai, and in the wilderness I tested you at the waters of Meribah. This is when God commands Moses to strike the rock with his staff, and what comes out? Water comes flowing out of the rock to give the people the life-saving water they needed. So, the rest of the psalm is about what the Israelites did and didn't do. Okay, and this is where we can really begin to take it and say, all right, Lord, teach me something about my own wilderness. You see, the wilderness is a central theme in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? The term wilderness is a central theme. It's not just simply 40 years of wandering that we see from the Israelites, but we see it everywhere. The Old Testament, I mean, the New Testament opens up with a guy who's coming from the wilderness. What's his name? John, John the Pentecostal, John the Calvinist, John the Baptist, yes, called the people back into the wilderness. Again, he was calling them back to the wilderness to be baptized, to meet God in a new way. Where's the first place Christ goes after the Holy Spirit ascends upon him? The wilderness. The book of Hebrews, specifically chapters three and four, says God calls us to consider ourselves still in the wilderness. The Bible wants you to change your paradigm, your outlook on life, as not being one that says, I want to picture myself on a sunny beach. When I come to the Lord, my best life can be lived and the Lord can uphold my best life up in the mountains. In the, in the tropics or on a beach. The Bible says you need to shift your paradigm. That's not where you're at yet, son or daughter. You're in the wilderness. And it tells you this, and you know this, because you see what's going on all around you. So why is it we have in our minds that we're on a tropical beach and that occasionally we take visits to the wilderness, right? And then we're like, oh God, why are you allowing this to happen? I lost my job, I lost my house, lost a child, I lost a loved one, I lost a relationship. How could you allow this to happen? And God says, don't you see? 
you, you, you believe that you're living in some sort of paradise. You're not yet. You're not in paradise. You're in the wilderness. I've set you free from your captor. Not Egypt, but what? Sin and death. You've been set free. Go ahead, leave the cage. The keys have been given to you. You, can no, you are no longer bound by sin and death. But you're still in the wilderness. On this side of heaven, friends, we will always be in the wilderness. That has to be a mind shift for you. It says, when I am going through trials and times of struggle, God has not abandoned me. God has not led me out into the middle of the desert to leave me. God is leading me through the wilderness to something. To something. This is a a big deal because I can't go on if you don't get get your mind in this part first. So many of us come to the Lord and we are so shocked when he allows us to stay in a wilderness Right? I've talk, I think I've said this before. I remember in my first years being married, it was just one struggle after another, sickness and death and finances and just school was still going on for me, college, and I was so, I kept, every new year I would say, this year, this is the year, it's gonna be good. And God would be like, no, it's not. It's gonna be really rough, but I love you and I'll be with you through it. And sure enough, the year would come and it would be really, really difficult. The nation of Israel moved through the wilderness and the only reason they didn't all die is because God's miraculous intervention multiple times, right? He provides the manna, he provides the water, he provides the life. So how, is it, how do you change your mind, your mindset, that in this life, you won't always be sitting on a beach in perfect weather, in a perfect, lovely place. And yet, you can still have the sweetness of God, the joy of God, the riches of God, the blessings of God in your life. Do you know that those two things can coincide? They aren't separate. It's not like, well, I'm in the wilderness now and I can't wait to get out and then enjoy the gift and the blessings of God. You see, not only are we in a wilderness, but it says here in the Bible, and this is what you can take with you, is there's a rock in the wilderness. There is a rock out there, and from that rock, life is being given. What do we know about that rock? What do we know about that rock? Yeah, I'm going to get to that in just a second. The honey is amazing. Just like the picture. We've got to let it simmer a little bit. <laughs> The Bible wants us to get real. God's not going to rearrange your circumstances so that way everything works out. He's going to allow the wilderness you're in to lead you to him. Right? God could have at any point let those Israelites walk right into the promised land, right? Right from slavery to the promised land. Why would he not do that? Why the wilderness? And that's a question I want want you to work through. Why the wilderness? We know why 40 years, because they bickered and fought and were, ended up being really terrible to one another and to the Lord. But why even take them there in the first place? Just take them to the promised land. You've prepared it for them. Does anyone know what the second law of thermodynamics is? I need someone because I don't know what it is. It involves entropy. All things are falling apart from order to chaos, yep. 
So this is the second law of thermodynamics. This is not a Christian thing. This is not a religious thing. This is the world's science. The second law of thermodynamics. Let me, let me make this more real to you. Have you ever pulled out a turkey on Thanksgiving? In those first moments, that turkey is amazing. If it's been well cooked and well taken care of, it's all crispy on the skin on the outside. The inside is moist. I hate that word. It's just delicious. The white meat, none of it's dry. It's full of flavor, right? I always cut the turkey every year in our family. And so then I take the carcass that's left inside the tin and we double bag it and then put it in the trash can. Well, one year we were busy and I just took it and I set it in the garage. And then I forgot. And then we ended up taking the car that was not in the garage all weekend. So I never went back in the garage until Monday. Second law of thermodynamics took place in my garage that day. And that thing, I don't know if the smell is still out of there to whoever is in my older home. Forgive me. Things are breaking down constantly, right? So, so often we get to a place in our lives with the Lord where things are going good and we're like, okay, things are going good. And we just expect them to stay there. And God's, God's like, that's not quite how this life works. Trial's coming. Stuff in life, the wilderness is coming. But I have prepared you for it. Imagine that. Imagine heading in to the desert fully prepared. It's not as scary, is it? Everything you need to go, everything you need to thrive, not just make it, but thrive. God says, I've equipped you with it. You've got it. So it's a tough mind, sh- mind shift to say, instead of God just making sure everything works out okay and I stay happy, no, Lord, I trust you no matter what happens. And I will walk with you. But not all of us are there. I'm not going to pretend that just because you're at church, all of us are like, oh, yeah, go God, go suffering, go the wilderness. It's awesome. We need to get to a place where we understand what ultimately the Israelites would understand, that the deepest needs of your heart and the deepest things that satisfy you will not be found in the world. They will be found in the rock in the wilderness. So let's talk about this rock. At the end of the passage, right, it says, if you only had done this, if you only had done this and this in the wilderness, I would have satisfied you from the rock. The rock in the wilderness is mentioned in verse 7 as well when it says, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Not once, but twice did God provide this. In fact, possibly more than twice. If you read Psalm 78, 14 through 16, we get the idea that uh, the, the rock, water coming from the rock may have been more than just two times, but that may have been God, how God provided for the people numerous times. Psalm 78, 14 through 16 says, he guided them with a cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the wilderness. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. It gives you the impression that maybe this happened more than just the two times we see recorded in Exodus and Numbers. And then when you go to the Song of Moses, the Song of Moses is in Deuteronomy 32, and this is a summary of that chapter. Essentially, Moses says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I will praise the greatness of our God, for he is our rock in the wilderness. 
a faithful God, the Lord will have compassion on his people. And when he sees that their strength is gone, therefore the Lord will say, now where are your gods? Where are those pebbles or those rocks you took refuge in? Can they rise up to help you? Can they give you shelter? See now, I am he. I am the rock. There is no God beside me, says the Lord. So what does all this mean? It means that in the middle of the wilderness, there is life in the rock. There is life when you meet God. Think about this. Where did Moses meet God? In Pharaoh's palace? In the wilderness. Where did Elijah go to experience God in his presence, the earthquake, the fire, the still small voice? Where did he go? The wilderness. The Gospel of Mark tells us very specifically that when Jesus would escape to pray, he would go to the wilderness to pray. He would get away from everything. And of course, John the Baptist came into the wilderness and invited people into the, came from the wilderness and invited people into the wilderness to meet the Lord. This is a simple fact of human nature. You may believe there's a God. You may even in times of distress pray to God. You may even come to church every now and again just to make sure and sort of keep up. Yeah, okay, there's a God. But here's the thing. God will only become your rock and your shelter and your life-sustaining force when you meet him in the wilderness. This is why Jesus says it's so hard for a rich man to enter heaven, harder than a camel for enter, to enter through the eye of a needle. Because when you surround your life with wealth and protective things that keep you from the wilderness, God will always just be an abstract idea, a moral compass of sorts, something to uh, ascribe to for the afterlife. But let's be honest, here on this earth, this Christianity stuff isn't always so practical. You meet God in the wilderness, friends. This is a hopeful thing, hopefully, to you. Because in the desert, when you meet God, all of this, all of the theory, all of the schooling and the doctrine and theology and commentaries and big Christian words, they all get thrown out and now you're standing face to face with the Almighty God. You're in His presence. You've let go of all of your preconceptions, your notions of what you maybe learned in church and you're in front of an Almighty God. Why do you think men like Moses and Elijah were so undone when a burning bush begins to talk to them or a whisper speaks? When you come to the presence of God, friend, it is no religion, it is no church, it is life, it is everything you have been seeking. And you find him in the wilderness. So don't look at the wilderness as a place to be avoided or as a place that you're there because God is punishing you. I remember I thought that one year, God, am I, am I paying for like what I, I was mean to my little brother? <laughs> like, am I paying for that? God says, no, you don't know what a blessing this season is. I'm going to keep you here for a little while longer and you'll recognize it one day. In fact, write this down or put it in your phone. Ju- uh, John 13, 7. John 13, 7. Write it down, I promise you. You won't care now, and you won't remember now, and you won't even remember where you heard it from, but one day when you need it, you're gonna look, and you're gonna see John 13, seven. And Jesus is speaking to Peter, and Jesus says, 
You do not know what I'm doing now, but later you'll understand. One day, if you write that down wherever you put it, whether you write it in your Bible, you put it on a note in your phone, you email it to yourself, text it to yourself, God will bring it up when the time is right. You do not understand what I'm doing now, but later you will. I could give you story after story of my life where I had no idea what God was doing in the moment. I had no idea how I was going to get life from this rock in the middle of a wilderness time in my life. But then he let me see it. In the wilderness, you'll find the rock. It'll be light when all their lights are gone. It'll be water when you're at your most dry, when everything else you used to get sustenance from and life from is gone, when the food and hope run out. There's water in the rock. There's life in the rock. And here's what's so amazing about God. If that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough for an almighty God to say, not only did I create you, but he's not trying to instill fear of him into you. He's trying to understand relationship with you. What else came from the rock? Honey. It's best when a southerner says it. If you could just yell it out, honey. Honey, see? I can't tell if she's wanting me to come over there or if she's answering the question. Honey, honey from the rock. It's one thing to get water from a rock, right? In the desert, if you were to find a large rock, large rock, you can hide in it for shade. At night, when most deserts, not ours, <laughs> we got lucky, ours stays really hot all night in the summer. Most deserts get crazy cold in the summer. Did you know that at night? When the sun goes down, it can go down to temperatures of freezing. If you found a large rock, a rock, unlike the sand and dirt, will hold in the heat. And so people would sleep up underneath the rocks if you were out in the desert because the heat from the rock would keep you warm. And then by day, it gives you shade, right? So not only is the rock that is in the wilderness sustaining your life, but then comes from it this sweetness. If my people would have just listened to me, if Israel would have followed my ways, with honey from the rock, I would have satisfied them. And here's what's so wild about this. God, this is like when God shows off a little bit because water can naturally pull on a rock, right? Water can naturally pull and then through cracks can even flow down from a rock. And, and, and you, could, you could push it off as just some natural phenomenon. Of course, uh, the water was up there, it's been up there, it created a crack, and now this is how water's coming from a rock. You cannot say, oh yeah, the rock just started producing honey. That just, just starts pouring out of it. There's no bees, there's just this rock, and then honey starts pouring out of it. This is what's so amazing, is God is saying, I give you more than just what you need. I also bring a sweetness to your life. I bring things that you want into your life. Most of us often think, oh, well, God, he just cares about the absolute bare minimum. You have no idea if you think that about him. Over and over throughout this book, he is trying to pour out blessing over and over again on his people. But he's also not going to pour out blessing on you if he knows that you will take it and destroy yourself with it, right? Would you give your kid tens of thousands of dollars at the age of 12, 10, 9 years old and just be like, you have a blasty, right? No more bedtime. Here's the Amazon account. You go for it. No, you would destroy them. 
And in the same way, God says, would you trust me? I have life. I have sweetness. And I will pour it out upon you. If you saw a rock in the distance, would you question why it's there? Or would you just be thankful and run up to it for shade? So often we question God's methods. Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? If you were in the middle of a desert and you saw fresh water and it wasn't a mirage, would you run up to the lake and be like, why are you here? Or would you fall face first in it and start drinking? Guys, religion has ruined relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion causes us to look at him as some sort of being that we must please or live up to, and it's just the opposite. He knows we can't live up to the standard that he has set, and so he gave himself as a substitute, and then he invites us in. He says, come on, the door's open, the water's fine, and the world wants to keep him as a religion. The enemy, Satan, wants to keep him as this being that is too hard to get to know. And what we're seeing here is that out of the bad times, out of difficulty, he will bring something sweet, something beautiful, because that's what he does. Now, this sort of sounds like Romans 8.28. Does anyone know Romans 8.28? It's a popular one. Not as popular as John 3.16. What's Romans 8.28? Shout it out. It's not shouting. Come on, don't be scared. Come on, that a boy. All things work together for good, those who love God. It's a wonderful verse. Here's the thing, often though, by the Christian community, this verse gets misunderstood and the promise that lies within it. And we set ourselves up for disappointment. First off, all things work together for good does not mean every individual circumstance has a good outcome. Okay? That's not the same thing. It doesn't minimize tragedy in life. It doesn't minimize a wilderness that somebody is walking through. So if somebody is struggling, please, dear Christian, brother or sister, do not go up to them in the middle of their struggle and be like, oh, don't worry, all things work out together for good to Christ, to those who love God. They will smack you in their face, right in your face, and rightfully so. Have you ever been there and you've had a well-meaning brother or sister be like, oh, chin up. Everything's going to be fine. Have you read Romans 8.28? And you're like, yes, I know Romans 8.28. It's on that poster in my office, and it makes me happy. <laughs> Don't do that. When Jesus hears the news of Lazarus, and he comes to the town, and he sees the people weeping, does he just walk in and be like, hey, 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 don't worry. Wait till you see what I'm going to do. Stop crying. I'm going to raise him up. All things work together for good. He weeps. He's angry. He's in anguish. Here's the thing that we often keep, have to keep in mind with what this means, that there is a blessing in disguise when we're in the wilderness. You don't see it, you can't always feel it, but the blessing is there. You keep your faith and you understand that in the midst of this wilderness, the rock will sustain me. Why is Jesus weeping when he knows that he has the power to raise Lazarus from the dead? Have you ever asked that question? I mean, is it a fake cry? Is he like fake pastor crying? not. Yeah. See, Jesus remembers Genesis 1 and 2. He knows how this world was created. He knows how it was formed, how it was meant to be. It didn't have death. It didn't have tragedy. 
He hates the condition and what sin is doing to his children just as much as you do, but eternally more than you do. And so to bring something good out of something evil doesn't mean that the thing that is evil is not evil. It's still evil. It means that God is going to turn it around for his good. So how do you live this out then? Well, first of all, we understand that if God, if I'm going through a wilderness time, God can bring something sweet from it. God can make us like Jesus and he can make us into something beautiful. He can deepen your joy. Who would like to have the joy of the Lord deepened in them, right? Like deeper joy, not just a surface joy, but Lord, I want that kind of joy that I see that neighbor down the street have. And I just, man, it's always just oozing out of them. I want that joy that that Walmart greeter has. Like they're just so happy to be greeting me at the Walmart. It's the Walmart. Do they know Target exists? I don't know. I'm just kidding. Target's an evil corporation and I hate everybody. (laughs) We don't support that or anything else in life. I don't support anything. It's tough right now, isn't it? Here's the thing about the wilderness. The wilderness will not only nourish you, but it will bring the sweetness of an almighty loving God before you. And if you've ever wanted to be more forgiving, if you've ever wanted to struggle with, if you've ever wanted to stop struggling with hatred and envy of what others have, if you've ever wanted to get this, not take an offense, come to the rock. He's already given you eternal life. Now he wants to sweeten things, sweeten the deal, right? He can do that. I'm telling you, one of the most powerful testimonies you can have is to be a Christian who does not take offense by whatever is happening in the world. Stop being offended. Take no offense. You never see Jesus offended by any of the sin around him. The only thing that offends Jesus is when his own people, his own leaders, set up a marketplace in his father's house and they do it in the name of his father. That upsets him. But any sinner, any wickedness done in his presence, he's never offended by it. He sees through to the person who's wrapped up in it and he wants to get to them. Don't be offended by the things that Jesus wouldn't be offended by. Learn to love the person and ask him how you can serve them and invite them to see the rock in the wilderness. Here's a few things about the wilderness you should know and then I'm gonna close. One, the wilderness will humble you. The wilderness will humiliate you. Who likes to be humiliated? So, as many people as first service. In the wilderness, you'll find out you're nowhere near as courageous or noble as you thought you were. In the wilderness, you'll find out you're not as spiritual or kind as you thought you were. In the wilderness, you'll find out you're more selfish than you dared thought. That's, that's the beauty of the wilderness. It exposes everything we can hide in the comfort of our home, everything we can hide in our wealth gets exposed in the, in the wilderness. We find sweetness in prayer in the wilderness. Did you know that? I'm gonna say that again. You will find sweetness in prayer in the wilderness. In fact, that's almost exclusively where it is first found in your walk. Everybody starts to pray. If you come to the Lord, we have quiet times. We try to say our prayers before we go to bed. We say prayers before a test or if we're taking a long vacation and we fly somewhere, then everybody becomes a Christian. We say prayers and we're just like, oh, come on, God. 
But I'm telling you, the sweetness of prayer comes in the wilderness. Comes when everything else has been stripped away from you. The evil in the world, the toughness of the world, and the joy of the Lord is what's left. The honey from the rock is what's presented before you. And all of a sudden, your prayers become sweet. I can't tell you, I cannot tell you enough how true that is. Growing up a Christian in a Christian home, I prayed since I was six years old, but I did not have the sweetness of prayer until my teens when I experienced wilderness times and I met the Lord, or I should say He met me. How is it possible, you might say? I know people who have suffered and they're not sweet. <laughs> they're Christians. They're not kinder. They're, they take tons of offense. They aren't more courageous. How is it possible? Well, look at verse 13. 81 verse 13. Do we have that? It's a little word. If my people would only listen to me. If Israel would only follow my ways. If. God does not force any of us to love him to submit, to confess, or to be kind. If, if you will receive what he has, if when you are, verse 7 says, tested in the wilderness, you have passed the test, then you will become something sweet instead of something sour. But now you should be asking, what if I don't pass the test? In fact, I often don't pass the test. I fell it all the time. I felt it this morning. I fell into my marriage and with my kids. I keep failing the test and I know I need to pass it. I want the sweetness of God, but I keep failing. There's three things here that the psalmist is making sure you understand. This is how it's done. First one, if my people rejoice on schedule. What? No, no. Yeah, this is real. If my people rejoice on schedule, the Feast of Tabernacles, let me just tell you this, is not an option for the, was not an option for the Jewish people, it was a command. You will celebrate this feast in remembrance of what God has done to sustain you. It was a scheduled time of celebration. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine commanding? Like, if, if we at LifePoint just commanded you, you must sing. We have little people coming around with noises machines, and we make sure that you're putting out the right amount of decibels. You will worship this morning. So help me. It was a command. And here's why. You don't always feel like worshiping the Lord. In the wilderness, you definitely don't feel like worshiping him. You're frustrated and you're tired and you're hangry and you're just like, God, why aren't you putting me back on the beach? And so God instituted uh, scheduled worship, this feast, and there's multiple feasts. Every Sunday we open with what? Scheduled worship. And every Sunday you do not show up here just ready and cannot wait, right? The traffic, the kids, the week, the job, something. You show up and you're just like, oh, I do not feel this. Fortunately, there's enough people around me singing. No one will notice me not singing. I know. 
I cannot sing. The Lord has not gifted me with a functioning singing voice. Right? That is not where he decided to pour out the gifts. And so I was okay, especially growing up in a Baptist church where you just stood reverently before the Lord, quietly with your hands down. Let me tell you something. This section of Scripture says, Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Strike the timbre, the sweet-sounding lyre and the harp. Blow the trumpet. What's he saying? He's saying we got to get the band act together. This isn't just some, like, monk seance. P-A-S-U domine. To all my holy girl fans, you're welcome. Anuseis requiem. This is outrageous worship. Get the lyre, get the timbrel, get the harps, get the electric guitar, get the crazy guy on the drums. We are going to worship the Lord and we're going to blow the chauffeur and we're going to do it. And then you've got, right? It's awesome. You've got this whole group of people like, and, and they're sitting there, they're like, oh, no thanks. No thank you. And then you're reminded, no, this is a command. And so you're like, well, how do I worship without feeling it? Friends, <laughs> if you only stayed married to your spouse at the times you felt loving towards them, <laughs> none of us would be married in here. Worship is an action. And you start to worship the Lord and you start to sing the songs even if you don't feel it. And you want to you see a miracle, right? Everyone wants to see a miracle. Everyone wants to see something crazy that can't be explained. Start singing and mouthing a worship song without feeling it and see what happens to your spirit. See if it doesn't change where you are immediately within minutes, seconds. I'm, tell, I'm giving you life right now. I'm not giving you religion. I'm telling you. Start mouthing the words. And then if you want to take it to the next level, you just raise these bad boys up. Right? I, mean, I promise. I know it sounds crazy, but you're talking to a Baptist boy who cannot sing and did not want people looking at him who was okay with this. And I can remember, man, when I finally stopped having the fear of man and what my friends and the other girls in high school group would think of me and I just raised my hands up, all of a sudden this rock in the desert was not a concept, but it was my God. It was my salvation. It was my life. And it changes you, friends. Come on. This is why this verse is so important. This is why this chapter of this thousand-year-old feast is so important because on this side of glory, you will always be walking in from wilderness to wilderness, but you're not walking it alone. There is a rock that supplies life and there is a rock that supplies the sweetness of life. And that is what I want you to leave here today. And how do you get there when you're struggling, when you keep failing? One, you schedule worship. You come to church. This is why we fought so hard during 2020 to keep our doors open because it's different from you sitting in your home by yourself looking at a TV than it is to come together as a body and to proclaim the Word of God, to shout it out. You got to fight for it. You have to fight for it. Your natural instinct is to not do it. Your natural instinct is to hide in your home and sing quietly under your breath. God knows that, so you schedule worship. Secondly, listen to His voice. Listen to his voice. You shall have no foreign God among you. Huh, okay. It's a command. Listen to his voice. He is speaking. He is drawing you out. He wants you to meditate upon his word. 
And so this is why we talk about reading the scriptures daily, not as a religious thing, in order to understand his voice from the voice of the world or your own mind when he speaks. If you meditate on his word, he will speak to you and it will be so clear that it's his voice, you won't wonder, is that you, God, speaking to me? And that leads us to the third and final thing. And we see it here, which, which I just read. You shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not bow down to any alien God. In the wilderness, God will call you to look and expose your idols. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? It's funny, because in the wilderness, anything you've made an idol gets exposed. And you're not, even if you're trying to hide it, it gets exposed. Your marriage, your children, your career, your health your education, your money. If there is something that is the center at who you are, it will be exposed in the wilderness. And God says, hey, by the way, I wouldn't bring any of the foreign gods with you into the wilderness. They're going to weigh you down. And this, to prove this to you, when God tells Moses to go up to Meribah and to bring the rod with him, I want you to understand that it says there that the people were quarreling with God. That doesn't mean they were bickering with him like your children do with each other. Maybe that's what you think, right? What's it mean to quarrel with God? In the Hebrew language, the word that is used means they are suing God. They're suing him. That's the language, it's a legal term, which means if you've ever been in business with a business partner and you sue one another, how's the barbecues on Friday going? They're, they're broken. It's gone, right? Relationship is done. When you sue somebody, relationship is over with. So the people of God look to him and say, hey, we don't like your water or your manna and you keep letting us wander in the desert. We're suing you. We'd like a different God. And Moses has dealt with this before with the people, remember? And so he's like, oh boy, guys, shut up. And God says, Moses, go to Meribah, bring the rod. The rod, by the way, was not just any rod. It was the visible representation of God's wrath. And so Moses is like, oh no, you're going to destroy them. And you have every right to because they're horrible people. And he knows it, right? Moses has pleaded and interceded on behalf of the people many times. And so he goes up to the rock, and now God says, strike the rock. And just imagine what he's thinking. Like, is he going to cause this whole mountain to fall down on them? Is he, what's he going to do to pour out his wrath? And in a situation where God had every right to pour out his wrath, he pours out water. He gives life to the people who said, we want to divorce you. We want nothing to do with you. Anybody who tells you the God of the Old Testament is mean or wicked or unkind has no idea what they're talking about. He pours out grace. And the same grace that was poured out to those Israelite people at Meribah is poured out to you today through the name of Jesus. That same rock, that same Christ, that same Savior is given to us today through Jesus Christ. Paul knew this. Paul knew this. In fact, I don't want to misquote it. It's 1 Corinthians. It's either 10 or 13. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 4. Our forefathers passed through the sea, right? What, what, is, what does Moses put down? His rod. And they passed through the sea. And in the desert, they drank from the rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Friends, God knows you're not going to make it. 
He knows you're going to fail. He knows you're not going to succeed at everything. And if you only see Jesus as an example of what you should do, you will live a miserable life because you will always fall short. But if you see him as an example and as your substitute, then you can worship him as your God. Because the wrath of God that was meant for you fell upon him. And his, his righteousness is given to you. And so where you failed, where the Israelite people failed, the rock that is Christ Jesus took the spot. It's an incredible, incredible understanding. And for you today, my prayer is this, whatever wilderness you're going through, whatever sickness, whatever death, whatever pain, whatever suffering you are currently going through, you need to come before the rock, confess, repent, and lay down whatever you are holding and say, oh God, help me. Some of you need to come and give your life to the Lord for the first time up here. Some of you need to trust him with your life for the first time. And others of you are Christians who have never put him as the center of your life. Others of you are Christians who have just been so long in the wilderness you've forgotten that not only does he provide life, but he provides the sweetness of life. And you need to be reminded of that. So we're going to take communion here, and we're closing with a time of communion. I mean, with a time of worship and uh, prayer. The altar is open. Uh, Pastor Tim will come up and lead us in communion. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, the rock that was there at Meribah, the same rock that was there on the cross. And Jesus, you're right here in our midst today. Never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, I pray that today for those who would be willing to reach up, to cry out to you, that you would reach down and you would pluck them out. Pluck them out of the bondage to sin and death. Please, in Jesus' name.